it is time for us to have another emergency podcast. Although we're having so many emergency podcasts that maybe we shouldn't use that term. There are lots of emergencies. And who better to, to talk about but not solve emergencies than the two of us? I agree, especially about a Russian default where we're not sure whether it is actually a default or not. And this is a timely question since in our lives as completely and utterly obscure law professors, it is rare that anybody wants to talk to us. But I think we've both been receiving lots of phone calls and popularity lately. That's, that's so wonderful for us about this question. And I at least have been giving answers, but I'm not really sure whether any of the answers I'm giving are right. So I'm hoping to figure it out today with you. Well, that sounds good. I've been, I, I want people to contact me about easier things because the, the problem I think we're going to talk about today is too hard. And so I try to give answers too, but I don't think I can give very good ones, or at least I don't think I can give very correct ones since I'm not sure I know what I'm talking about. Because really, I think we need to talk about the sanctions that have caused, I guess, the Russian default. Certainly all of the press accounts that I've seen talk about it as uh, a default. Uh, Sometimes they talk about it as the first default on foreign debt since the repudiation of the czarist debt, whether whether that's really true or not. I know some some cranky people think that it's not, but um, in any event, are the press reports right, do you think? Has this been a default? The Russian government seems to think not, and maybe they're not completely blowing smoke? I don't think they're completely blowing smoke. So we, we have talked about this before, maybe in the context of Venezuela, and I had to go back and reread some of those Venezuelan cases that I confess were still quite confusing. But here is why I think this is a complicated question. And maybe then we can get into what what happened and what the relevant rules are. I think it's complicated for the reasons that the Russians are giving. And I I know that neither one of us has any great sympathy uh, for the Russians, given the horrible things that they have been doing. But in this case, it's quite possible that the U.S. has made certain missteps that have given Russia a fairly plausible defense to there being a default. And simply put, this is the doctrine of impossibility or impracticability, which is under the rubric of excuses, as we teach it in basic contract law. And if certain events happen, somebody who is not able to perform can say, I am excused. And here, arguably, Western governments are prohibiting Russia from paying creditors. And therefore, Russia can claim it is excused from paying Temporarily. Now, I I think the law would say that they have to eventually pay. This is just temporary. But they're willing to do that, best I can understand. And the question is whether or not they are excused. Now, on the face of it, seems like they are being prohibited by Western governments through sanctions, or uh, at least the intermediaries are being prohibited. I am a little unclear on all of the details on who is being prohibited by what, uh, but we should talk about that. But they seem to have an excuse. Is is that your understanding too? Or, I mean, I know you are going to tell me this is much more complicated. Well, I think we both think it's more complicated than that. To my mind, there's two things that you're, two issues that you're raising One, this impossibility question kind of takes as a given that it's not possible for the Russian government to get money into the pockets of bondholders. And then I think you're right. There's a a very plausible argument. Uh, I'm not sure it's a 
a winning one, but it's certainly not not a ridiculous argument that the sanctions have effectively given the Russian government an excuse. And we, we can talk about that. The, the second issue, though, I think you and maybe I are both a little bit unclear just about whether it is in fact impossible for the Russian government to get money to bondholders. And in particular, you know, they're sending rubles now to NSD and seem willing to transfer those rubles to bondholders who I think they'd have to create an account with a Russian bank to receive them. And I guess an initial question for me is, is that a contractually permitted mechanism for payment on the one hand? Um, And if it is contractually permitted, are bondholders allowed to do that under the sanctions? Because if it's contractually permitted and bondholders can do it, then it sounds like the payment is feasible to make, doesn't it? So, okay. So can we, let's go through this um, slowly since I'm, I have a small brain and this, this is complicated. Plus this is potentially sounding like really good exam question material. So for your class, maybe (laughs) Yeah, before I put it on an exam, I want to make sure I know the answer so I can grade it appropriately and, you know, I know that since my students are not going to be listening to this, uh, that, that, that this will be a perfectly valid exam question. Yes. All right. So let's, there's a whole bunch of bondholders. So let, uh, for simplicity, let's first take the bondholders who are in countries that have not um, imposed sanctions. Now, if you are a bondholder in uh, China, and Russia says, I'm going to pay you in rubles because for whatever reason, I'm not allowed to use the dollar payment system. You know, what, let, let's just assume they can't and they, they have announced they're making the payments in rubles. My contract says on its face that I am entitled to receive dollars in a certain bank uh, in New York. But can Russia tell me that owing to changes in circumstances, uh, I need to come and get the money from an account in rubles? And maybe let's even for the sake of simplicity, since Russia is actually seeming to be very cooperative, Russia is willing to pay the extra transactions costs for me to open an account at NSD and receive the money. So let's say... I'm a bondholder in China or India. If it is possible for me to get the money, am I obliged to take the steps that would make it possible to get it? So there, tell me, you may disagree with this. I haven't given this a lot of thought, but there I think the answer is that if your contract has one of the alternative payment currency event clauses that allows for payment in rubles. And if there are some procedural steps, the Russian government would have to follow, like giving you notice and things like that. But if you have one of those contracts, I think there's a pretty good argument that you would have to accept payment in rubles. Not 100%, but pretty good. If you don't hold... Yeah, okay, good. If you don't hold one of those contracts, then I think the answer is no, you don't have to, to do that. And it would be an event of default for the, the Russian government to try to force you to accept a different currency. So uh, what about those? So you're, you're exactly right that in the contracts that for bonds issued after 2017, I think, so 2008, starting in 2018, they have these alternate payment clause uh, provisions that seem to say, you know, if we do bad things and, you know, we're not able to pay, we'll pay you in rubles there. I I think if we're thinking about allocation of risk, the bondholders have agreed to try to receive the payments in rubles. At least there's a good argument. Now, if we go to the prior contracts, they have this provision called the currency indemnity uh, provision. Now, this is not as uh, favorable for the ruble payment 
as the alternate payments clause, but it does seem to say that if Russia pays you in rubles and pays all the associated transactions costs for you to convert your rubles into the currency you're entitled, then the obligation is uh, quote unquote discharged. Now, does this clause help you? And then uh, maybe I, I was going to ask you about obligation to mitigate, and maybe, maybe we'll wait. Well, wait let me let me let's talk about the one this question that you just raised about the the currency indemnity clause because I think you and I disagree maybe on that clause. So what you're saying is that even for bonds that don't have the alternative currency clause that allows for payment in rubles, there's this other provision that says, to the extent you get paid in rubles you know, and the associated costs of converting them, then that discharges the obligation to pay you in another currency. So the thing um, that I think we should be careful about, and here's where maybe we disagree, is I think that that currency indemnity clause refers to ruble payments received with quotes around received by bondholders. And I think the natural meaning of that language and the meaning any reasonable court would assign to it is that this only applies when bondholders actually get the money and that it that clause is not triggered by the Russian government just saying like, hey, even though we have no right to pay you in rubles. And even though you're not obliged to take steps to receive the rubles, we're willing to pay you in rubles. I don't think that triggers the clause because that doesn't mean that bondholders receive the money unless they create the account and they get the rubles. That's what would trigger the clause. Uh, so I, I think I, so I would agree with you. And I think that they'd have to do something like that. So what? imagine the situation where Russia says, look, it's really difficult for us to pay you. We really want to pay you. So we're going to create accounts for you uh, so that you can easily get it. And for each, each person who's a, who has to get money, we're going to create the account for you. We're going to pay the extra transactions costs. Here's your account. Your account will be credited with the money. This is all you have to do. Do it and you will have your money in nicely convertible rubles. Uh, so would that be enough? I mean, my understanding is this clause was not intended for this kind of situation. This clause is intended for situations where somebody like a bondholder is suing the, the sovereign for something and then it's suing it in Russia. They The, the Russian court has to give the award in rubles because they're not entitled to give any awards in foreign currency. So you, you're going to have to receive the money in the foreign in the in rubles, but that would be discharge of the obligation so long as it is the right amount to convert into dollars. Yeah, at the exchange rate at that point. I think the whole point is that once the money is genuinely made available to bondholders, once the rubles are genuinely made available to them, you don't want to let them just engage in currency speculation after that point on the Russian government's dime. You know, they can speculate if they want, but it's the risk is on them. So it's a discharge um, in the amount they could have converted those rubles to dollars uh, for at the time they received them. But if unless the bondholders actually get the rubles and thus can engage in a transaction converting them to hard currency, then I don't think this currency indemnity provision gets triggered. But um, so am I am I correct in understanding that now we can talk a little bit about obligation to mitigate, meaning that if I'm a bondholder and I could receive the money and somebody else is willing to pay for me to receive the money, I can't just sit and ignore all the messages that I get about this new account being created that enables me to, do, to receive the money. I can't be willfully blind uh, to any of this. I am obliged uh, as part of my contractual relationship to try to take steps to enable the other side to perform. I, so I don't know, both because I don't think there are very many cases in the bond context dealing with what it means to 
this doctrine of avoidability or mitigation, uh, what steps a bondholder would have to take to avoid its losses. I, I just don't think there are that many cases. Also, I'm not convinced that even if the duty to mitigate, which is already kind of a misnomer, right? But let's call it the duty to mitigate. Even if that applies here, it's not in the sense that it potentially could limit a bondholder's remedy. It's not at all obvious to me that it would require the bondholder to create an account in which it could receive rubles, which might be subject at some later point to all kinds of exchange restrictions so, by the Russian government. Russia creates the account for you. So what? It's still uh, an account, presumably at a Russian bank, that's ultimately going to be subject to the whims of the Russian government. You know, we only expect people to act reasonably to avoid harms, even assuming the duty pertains in the first place. I don't know that a court would say that a reasonable bondholder with a right to receive hard currency would. Um, would set up an account to receive rubles at a Russian bank subject to the future whims of the unpredictable Russian government. I mean, maybe, but that's, that's hardly a slam dunk argument for me. So then we go to which court is going to have jurisdiction over this matter? Well, the English courts. <laughs> well, they will, right? I mean, it depends on where the bondholder is located, perhaps. But yes. the English courts will have jurisdiction over the English law governed. Yes, but what if bond. Russia says, eh, we didn't consent to jurisdiction anywhere. We're, we're happy to go by English law, but it's, it's our local court in the basement of the Kremlin that's going to yeah. decide this. Well, good yeah. luck with that argument. <laughs> so, all right. Um, as a pragmatic matter, if I am a bondholder, I think I would prefer to receive the money in my nicely convertible rubles, especially if it's in the hundreds of millions of dollars, than to declare a default and then sue in a world in which the assets are largely frozen. It, it do, I mean, as a practical matter, I think we know that bondholders who can receive the money are actually taking the money. At least that's what I'm hearing. I think that that's probably right. Certainly a bunch of them are going to want to go that route. Otherwise, okay. what's your choice? You sit around for God knows how long, hoping that eventually the dollars start to flow again. All right. So can we now go to the matter of whether or not U.S. bondholders can receive money? Sure. If you, t if you tell me whether you think they can or can't, because I confess I'm a little bit confused here. So my initial understanding, uh, and I hope I did not say this to anybody, if so, my apologies, was that the primary problem was that the US was restricting payments in dollars. I, I think that is not the case. The The... The, the restriction from the sanctions that have been imposed by the US are on transactions with the Central Bank of Russia, the Ministry of Finance or other entities uh, close to the Russian government. And you cannot engage in uh, transactions with them, uh, broadly speaking. Is that um, the relevant uh, rule And under that rule, it seems like U.S. bondholders, either themselves or the intermediaries who would give them the money, uh, they can't, they arguably can't receive it. So I think this is, you're, you're focusing on the language that seems most relevant to me. And I think this is the, the hard question. So as I understand it, the language, which I think is in, what is it, Directive 4 under the, uh, the executive order relating to Russian sanctions. So that, that directive forbids, uh, I think the language is, it forbids U.S. persons uh, from engaging in any transaction 
involving the central bank and the Ministry of Finance and so on and so forth, including any transfer of assets to those entities or any foreign exchange transaction for or on behalf of such entities. So you can imagine a variety of ways this is um, this is kind of biting here. It's clearly it's affecting the decisions of intermediaries to pass along payments. But I think the question you and I have been struggling with, because it's relevant here to whether bondholders could get paid in rubles if they wanted, is whether just receiving money or maybe taking steps to allow you to receive money would violate the sanctions either directly, because it's a transaction with the Russian Ministry of Finance, or even if it's not a direct violation like that, would amount to an, a step that's taken to evade the sanctions, which is, that's also prohibited. Any transaction that evades or avoids has the purpose of evading or avoiding causes a violation of or attempts to violate any of the prohibitions. So that's a, a separate question, right? Uh, and I don't know the answers. So can I can I um, respond to your uh, nice and clear articulation of the provision with a couple of questions of my own? But sure, I, I don't mean to to subject you to the, all of the uncertainty. But th- this, these are the questions that I had when I read when I read that provision. Uh, you know, it talks about transactions, and then. It, so of course, uh, being a geeky lawyer, I look up the definition of transaction, and then it it talks about in the last couple of sentences, uh, it, it seems to be talking about sort of um, engaging in uh, activities that uh, help give the Russian government money, uh, and now as background, we have similar sorts of sanctions rules that were applied by the Trump administration in the Venezuela context. And that we have a couple of cases, an English case, at least one, uh, the US case. I think this was the Dresser-Rand case, uh, a Second Circuit unpublished decision. So in those cases, they say, look, we got to look at the language of the rule. There's not a statute, right? It's it's just a, a, a treasury it's a presidential rule or a treasury rule? A and then treasury rule. regulations, I guess. Now, this is admin law stuff that I don't oh, understand just... very well, but let's let's just forget all that. Yeah, but they all they do say that, you know, you have to think about the intent of it and the intent of it is usually to stop the government from receiving money. And then they also say the intent of it is not to stop U.S. persons from receiving their money. So let's say we interpret this in light of those background norms that look, we're not trying to hurt US investors. We're just trying to hurt the Russian government, uh, penalize it for its misbehavior, deter it from its continuing misbehavior. Now, if, if I think of transaction as sort of buying and selling, like a thing that the transaction here has already occurred. Like I bought their bonds a long time ago before I knew it was evil Putin. Okay, I mean, that's not really right. But, you know, the bonds we're talking about are where it should even before Crimea, the Crimean invasion. He was still evil, but, you know, may, maybe we can uh, bypass that. Uh, so if I think receiving money is not a transaction, like I've just receiving money. Does it become a transaction for me to go and get my money from an NSD account in rubles that somebody else set up for me? Like, yes, that's less passive, uh, but geez, like uh, this is supposed, like I, you're not trying to prohibit me from receiving the money I'm entitled to. That That's not the goal of the US government, presumably. So, so long as I'm not giving them new money, I'm not helping them in any way. In fact, I'm arguably hurting them uh, because I'm taking money away from them, uh, less money for them to uh, fund their illicit activities in Ukraine. Uh, does that, like if I am a bondholder now, can I go and get my money? So I, I don't know the answer to this. I think you're, you're first of all, I'm not as persuaded 
that it matters that the transaction is in the past, or even if we want to think about it uh, in those terms. So I don't see anything in the language of the directive that suggests um, continued performance of a contract that predates the sanctions somehow is carved out of the definition of a transaction. That's not the, the natural reading of that language to me. And I think that if I were, we're talking about this sort of as if we're interpreting a contract, but I think the reality is that most investors are going to be super conservative, at least if they're subject to US jurisdiction. And so they're not likely to read this in the kind of they're going to have a thumb on the scale in favor of conservatism. But I do think there is a, a, a sound argument along the lines that you're making that, look, the whole the point of a sanctions regime is not to punish U.S. parties. It's to punish the, the sanctioned entity. And that suggests that the simply receiving money, kind of draining the Russian coffers, as it were, shouldn't be a big deal. And if it's not a big deal, then it wouldn't be a direct violation of the sanctions, using this logic, to set up an account elsewhere to get to get paid in rubles. Now, I do I think that's the way Treasury would view it? Uh, I'm not so sure. And I sure as hell wouldn't want to gamble on that if I were an investor. But I think that's that's the argument why it's not a direct violation here. And then I guess the question is, you know, if we assume that the sanctions do want to block the transfer of money through these intermediaries right now, and how do we, it seems like, of course, that's what the sanctions want to do, right? The, uh, there was an exception allowing these payments to be made. So the government thought a license was necessary, right? It issued the license. It just hasn't renewed the license. All of that suggests the government rejects the logic that we're talking about here. And so, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm very worried uh, about your, your argument that draws on the kind of purpose that we're assigning to these transactions here, because it looks like Treasury disagrees, even though I see the logic of what you're saying. I, I suspect Treasury disagrees. I suspect that th here, so, I, but here I think, like, I think I'm gonna, uh, let me make the argument, and then I, I think my argument is illogical. Uh, but the, so, I'm going to make the argument, the hypothetical argument that Treasury would make, uh, at least the part of Treasury that was in favor of not renewing the license. And the rumors are that there was a big battle in Treasury and maybe between the Treasury and the White House as to whether or not to renew the license or not, along the lines that we are talking about. Uh, and the people who said non-renewal won. But let's, let's say that the logic was, look, uh, we can impose further pain on Russia by doing things that will in some ways force investors to start suing them and uh, chasing Russian assets and uh, causing uh, inconvenience to Russia all over the world. So like we're going to like cleverly um, sort of co-opt the Elliott Associates and Jay Newmans of the world uh, to chase after Russia. And they're so much better at this than we are. And they have, you know, Ted Olson and everybody else fancy in their pockets. And th th this is all going to work. Now, I think I'm going to make your argument and then maybe you can tell me why it's, why it's wrong. This is a completely stupid argument because Elliot and Ted Olson and Jay, they're not going to chase these assets because they're, most of them are completely frozen. They, they can get it. And they're not going to, as I think maybe you explained in the last podcast, they're not going to go to court and get judgments when that means they're going to earn at a low interest rate and not get any, get any assets. Plus, if all the other creditors who are non-US creditors are getting their money, they're not going to be able, 
they're neither going to be able to vote in favor of acceleration, nor are they, I think, I mean, they're not going to be willing to even if they could. So nobody's actually, if you play this out, I don't see anybody suing. So that surely that cannot be the logic of the people in Treasury. They can't be saying, look, we're going to not give the license because that will create all these private attorneys general, because if you just thought three steps ahead, you would realize this is just like all that this is achieving is that U.S. investors don't get their money. So maybe we yeah, don't I like think- U.S. investors and we don't want to help them and we want to make sure they're poor. I mean, I don't know who they are, so uh, maybe we want to penalize them for buying Russian bonds. Uh, but but this just seems like um, logic of my own argument seems stupid. Well, I, I think um, to your I agree with you. Early on in this, there were some reports about how, in effect, Russia just couldn't be sued. It was impossible because they hadn't waived sovereign immunity. And I was kind of pushing back against those reports because they can be sued. Uh, It's harder, but not impossible. But that doesn't mean it's a smart move by your average investor to do it. And certainly, if the logic of this sanctions regime was to prompt widespread aggressive litigation against the Russians, then that's just stupid logic because nobody in their right mind, I don't think, would expect that to happen. Now, three years from now, maybe we can have a conversation when the prescription clause is going to be triggered for these bonds. Like, and you know, maybe there'll be a few investors who who start the ball rolling long before then. But we're not going to see really widespread uh, aggressive litigation, I don't think. I think we're kind of um we've gotten a little away from from the point though. So let me just uh, ask a slightly different version of, of this question. So one way to look at the sanctions is that really the we're thinking about investors and the right entity to be thinking about is the intermediaries, because those are the ones who are engaging in transactions with, sort of directly with, including foreign exchange transactions with the Ministry of Finance or the NSD or so forth. And the reason that general license was that authorized payments on the bonds through May 25th or 26th or whenever it was. The reason that was necessary is to let those intermediaries process the payment. And nothing ever suggested there was anything wrong with bondholders actually receiving money. They were just never really the targets. If that's how you understand the sanctions, then you know the bondholders are not really the affected parties. They've never been central to these sanctions. And if the bondholders want to move to other banks, banks that are not subject to U.S. jurisdiction and thus not uh, worried about the sanctions regime, and they want to open accounts there and they want to get paid in rubles. I don't know that the this history that I was relying on, the history of General License 7A sort of granting the authority to process payments, I don't know that that tells us very much because that was all about the cities of the world and in the EU, you know, the, the Euro clears of the world or whatever. And so if we just kind of take them out of the picture, what's wrong with letting bondholders transact with parties who aren't subject to the sanctions regime? Again, you're, they're not supposed to be hurt. We're not, the goal is not to hurt U.S. parties here. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I think push come to shove. If Treasury were posed with this question, it would be hard for them to say, "No, we're 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 going we're going to hurt you if you take the money." Uh, I think it's going to. I mean, it's just both as a political matter and as a pragmatic matter. It would be very hard to give that answer, and I but mean, didn't... surely that there are. I mean. Investment houses, I mean, right? I mean, PIMCO and BlackRock, they've got billions invested in these assets. They want to receive the payments on behalf of their investors. They're going to be asking. Now that I say this, though, so I'm going to reveal my uh, sort of embarrassing gap in my knowledge here. Isn't this really the question that was at the heart of the decision whether to allow the Russian government to continue paying in dollars using in effect, non-sanctioned assets. You know, like you, 
the the issue there, I think, is whether they can take dollars that don't touch the U.S. financial system and get them in the pockets of bondholders. And I thought Treasury's answer to that was a pretty clear, no, we're not going to allow it. And if I'm right about that, that seems to me to be exactly the same question that we're talking about here. And the fact that one might be in dollars and one might be in rubles, that's irrelevant. The point is that they decided not to allow payments to U.S. persons, even when made outside the U.S. financial system. Am I, am I wrong about that? You are not wrong. I just, I just wonder whether they thought that their logic was that we will get bondholders to chase after Russia. Now that they see that that's not going to happen, uh, you know, let, let's just go, if we go back in history to the, the Iran hostage crisis and what happened there where the U.S. government did want to try to uh, get bondholders, uh, there, then the big big banks like Citi and Chase um, to, to cause harm to Iran. In that context, they did, the U.S. government did succeed in getting the banks to do all sorts of things that really pissed off uh, the European banks, uh, because the, there was this sense of patriotism and uh, outrage about the hostage crisis. My sense is now that we're talking about investors, bond investors, as opposed to the big banks, and we're not talking about, we're talking about Ukraine. Uh, the, I don't think people are, are, are as emotionally invested in uh, their patriotism vis-a-vis Ukraine over and above wanting to receive their uh, millions of dollars in payments. I just think that this was a bad strategy and there is, there is enough uh, legal wiggle room for Treasury to back off without admitting that it uh, goofed. And uh, will they do that or not is, is in some ways the question because I, I completely agree with you. If you read the timeline of events, it does seem like they don't want the U.S. investors to get money because they want the U.S. investors to behave in some way that will help them. Now that that's not going to happen, will they? Will they just sort of pretend like this? You know, no harm, no foul, whatever that metaphor is. Yeah, I don't know, and I, but I would think that you would want to allow payment in to go back to an idea that you and Lee, I think, uh, had floated earlier, and that's been the subtext for what we've just been talking about. Go to go back to allow allowing payment in non-sanctioned dollars at least accomplishes something. It slightly drains the mammoth Russian war chest of dollars that's still accumulating. Now, I guess the, uh, so that's something. I guess the, the the more cynical response to that, though, is honestly, who gives a shit? So much money has been rolling in. And, you know, each time there's this performative ratcheting up of the sanctions, like, you know, we're giving six months notice, we're doing all kinds of ridiculous things. The reality is, this is a slight overstatement, but it's almost like Russia could just retire its entire foreign debt stock by writing a check tomorrow and not bat an eye using non-sanctioned assets. Now that's a slight overstatement, but the reality is if your goal is to siphon off non-sanctioned dollar reserves, this is also kind of a stupid way of doing it because it's just not going to siphon off very much, very much. No, I mean, what <laughs> this is like, I mean, this is just a comedy of errors, right? I mean, Russia's, thanks to the oil and gas prices go shooting through the roof, they're just awash in money. And there, there is no problem. And thanks to countries like China and India that are, are delighted to transact with them, there's no shortage of counterparties who are willing to buy their stuff. And, you know, the Europeans, uh, they, you know, some of them want to buy, some don't want to buy. It's, this route is just not, proving to be that favorable and i wonder whether you know uh i mean hurting from a political perspective hurting u.s investors without a coherent strategy 
just it it doesn't seem like it's uh it 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 doesn't seem like it's beneficial no especially in a in a world where we are not willing to impose pain on us parties in connection with a sanctions regime that might actually be effective i mean i'm not an uh, uh i don't have enough expertise to really have an infor- informed opinion here, but you hear people who I respect talking about, you know, uh, extending the sanctions to things like oil tanker insurance, right? Things to effectively kill the export market globally. It seems obvious to me that those are political non-starters, even though they have the chance of actually being effective and actually uh, doing significant harm to the Russian economy, but. It seems like the because of the high gas prices, it's just a political non-starter. So I don't know why investors are the exception here and are being uh, sort of forced to to bear the pain. Now that said, I'm not that sympathetic to them, right? Because they did lend money to the Russian government and they knew Putin was a bad guy, and some of them had explicit notice in the contracts that he might decide to be an even worse guy in the future, and they lent money anyway. So. You know, I, I I'm not going to lose any sleep over this, but I don't think the the strategy here is especially rational, uh, or and certainly not effective by the U.S. government. Can we um, just to take this full circle before we uh, end the podcast? Can we talk a little bit about the doctrines of impossibility and impracticability? Oh yeah, uh, again uh, and. Particularly, so I was reading in preparation for our podcast, the Dresser Rand opinion, and, you know, in, in the, the start of the discussion, before they go into Pedavesa's argument in the Venezuela case that they were, that the U.S. sanctions had made it impossible or impracticable for them to pay, they were looking for the court to say, make, uh, to give them an excuse uh, the court starts with the usual stuff, and but it begins with saying, look, this is an assumption of risk doctrine. And in that case, they say, look, the, um, and this, this was the second circuit because it gets affirmed at the second circuit. Um, the district court rejects the argument by Pedavesa that they are excused. And then the district court, the appellate court affirms it. And the appellate court, says, as I read it, this was clearly an assumption of risk by Pedavesa because they have a provision in there that, uh, okay, my memory is fading me, but it basically it sort of waives all defenses. That's so right. The, the court says, no, you're obli- yes, there might be impossibility, uh, impracticability, act of God, uh, and parenthesis, Russia is asserting uh, this act of God idea, which I, I always find frustrating since what has God got to do with this? But whatever, let's let's leave uh, my frustration with that language. Uh, there, the Court of Appeals says assumption of risk, the risk was clearly assumed by the debtor, in that case, Petroleos de Venezuela. Right. How would that, if we think of the, this as an the, the question is, who assumed the risk of these kinds of sanctions? How would that play out? Can we think this through a yeah. little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting question. So as far as I know, there's no comparable language in the Russian bonds. But there is kind of equally interesting sort of language. So if you think about the alternative payment currency event clause and the history that that clause went through in terms of its evolution. So in terms of the bonds that are out there in the market now, we've got bonds that have no alternative payment clause whatsoever, bonds that have an alternative payment clause, but that only specify other hard currencies, and then bonds that uh, have the alternative payment clause that includes rubles. It makes some degree of sense, like we were talking about at the beginning, to look at that last group of bonds, the ones that allows for payment in rubles, and say, here's a situation where investors 
assumed the because the government can always come up with rubles. Nothing's ever going to be impossible about that. So there's a situation where the investors assumed the risk that it would be impossible for the Russian government to pay in some kind of hard currency. So if we start with that set of contracts, and you can start asking, well, if the risk of being unable to come up with hard currency was on bondholders to begin with, there'd be no need for that provision, right? So then we think, well, by implication, I would think the impossibility defense ought to lose for the first two categories of bonds. I'm not sure it should, the, the, hold on, I'm going to leave that third category aside for now, but it's the impossibility defense should should lose for the first two categories of bonds. Like the, we should view those contracts as assigning this risk to Russia. And on the third category of bonds, by my logic, we don't need the impossibility defense, right? Because the contract, you don't need this, this background rule of law. The contract says you can pay in rubles. Maybe, maybe there's something I'm, I'm missing. And, and like I say, I don't think the Russian argument on that third group of contracts is 100% strong, but that's kind of how I see it on impossibility. I, I think if, if, you, if you look at the language, I mean, so there, there are two ways that this is, uh, if this gets to a court, and we talked about how actually right now nobody has the incentive to go to any court. Like investors are just going to sit and wait. Uh, and and th- they're going to hope that Russia, when that this is all resolved soon, and Russia pays them all uh, in full, and then they'll eagerly buy new Russian bonds. Because in fact, the irony is Russia has shown itself to be a really, really good debtor. Uh, yes, it invades its neighbors, but it really likes paying its creditors. So what, whatever, whatever. But um, if we go down the path of assumption of risk, which my a cynical impression of that most courts can don't understand risk analysis and they don't actually take the assumption of risk analysis uh, very seriously but they always cite to it uh, and then they they talk about acts of god and then do whatever the hell they're thinking about but taking assumption of risk seriously your analysis has to be right these contracts are different in some of them the risk is allocated clearly in others it's not as clearly allocated so one would think, and, and we know that the non-payments are going to come uh, in those other bonds soon enough, in a matter of months, like coupons must be due. So uh, it would be very interesting uh, to see what the analysis is in these different contracts and whether they are uh, analyzed by a court differently. Uh, but uh, this... I think bottom line is not clear that Russia has defaulted. I, I think they probably have defaulted, highly likely that this is not an excused default, but they have an argument to make, at least for some of their bonds, that it is an excused default, but maybe not uh, the strongest argument for the bonds at hand right now. But even if there is a default, they're probably not going to have enough votes to do the things that you normally want to do after a default, which is to accelerate. That's right. I don't see any any logic behind accelerating unless you want to take the next step and file a lawsuit. And you know, maybe there are some creditors out there who are interested in that possibility, but I think they're going to be pretty far out of the mainstream, at least for the next uh, next couple of years. Okay, I'm going to end with like this is just this just occurred to me, but I, I promise this is my last question, and then we will we 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 will wrap up unless you decide there's something. So let's say Russia goes to court. Uh, in England, right? I, I, I mean, I think they're like as plaintiff, go- or just appears when it gets sued. No, it just appears because it wants like a, a determination. It says okay, so we're it's, it's filing its own. It's filing its yeah. own lawsuit. I, I don't know if you're allowed to do that, but it's just like well, we sure, want to know whether we're excused or not. Right, right. Um, right. And th- this is a question we've been accused of defaulting by the press. Blah blah blah. Um, uh, 
I guess rating agencies are now like just basically not following Russia. Right. Uh, but we've been it's we've been uh, accused of defaulting and this is bad for us. So we just want a determination. They're going to go saying and we're excused. Here, here's the law of force majeure and here's the law. Is any investor going to pay for, uh, you know, Sullivan and Cromwell to represent them in that English or Alan Novry or whatever uh, uh, proceeding? to defend against that. What investor is going to waste money on fancy lawyers to defend against this? And so Russia is going to be the only party. And then doesn't doesn't it win just by that virtue of that? No, I mean, I, I've never thought of this, but I think you have it backwards. I mean, first of all, I think the Russians would not want to be subjecting themselves voluntarily to the jurisdiction of English courts. But also, I know literally nothing about English preclusion rules. But in the US, that's a, a kind of a dumb strategy unless you plan to file a uh, class action, a defendant class action against all of your bondholders, because the, only the people you sue are going to be bound by that judgment anyway. So, um, you know, you're not going to get the kind of binding ruling uh, that you want. And whoever you do sue, yeah, I bet they're going to hire Sullivan or Allen and Overy to defend themselves at that point. I mean, we've been talking about how there's not much to be gained uh, by suing the Russian government, but there's a hell of a lot to be lost if you just let them vaporize your claim. So, yeah, I don't see this as a very realistic scenario. Okay, at all. I, I, I withdraw that. We have just provided humor and my lack of understanding of strategy in the English courts. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you're right, but um, it seems more likely. I think that maybe we'll get a bondholder who wants to to start the litigation ball rolling, and then we can find out the answers to some of these things. Uh, we can hope. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I think we should end on that note before we reveal uh, more of my utter lack of knowledge of this area. But I, I think we have safely concluded it is not clear whether Russia has actually defaulted. I think that's right. Probably they have, but it's least clear on the most recent bonds that allow for payment in rubles, or at least it will be least clear uh, when things uh, when things progress. 